Why, hello there. My name is Chris Abel, and welcome to Hey, All You Zombies. Hey, rock that out. There you go. Uh, my co-host over there is a zombie celebrity, or <laughs> Zed-lebrity, Mr. Richard Krause, author, of course. How's it going? Buy my book. That's my last shameless plug from the show. Buy your book. Yes, which <laughs> continues to get rave reviews from the Chicago Tribune. I know. Uh, it's crazy, right? I know. Of, yeah, it's just... it's. It, it, you know, it kind of blows my mind that something that I sat here, you know, staring yeah. at this screen, uh, writing for a couple of years, uh, every now and again, I get those Google alerts, and it's like, the Hollywood Reporter's written about you, the Chicago Tribune, Entertainment Weekly is writing about your book. I was like, I just can't believe it. I can't. And we're going into a second printing now. The book is called yeah. Raising Hell, Ken Russell and the Unmaking of the Devils. We're going into a second printing now, and we're making some slight little tweaks to it. Um, not so much the text inside, but the back cover is going to be different to reflect Guillermo del Toro's love of the book. We're finally getting his quote on the back, which is cool. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal. I, I can't believe. I mean, second printing after one week. I know. It's unheard of. Yeah, yeah it, it, it really is crazy. <laughs> uh, this week, our episode is going to be devoted to devoted to the subject of superstition. So I hope mm. you got your your fingers crossed. I actually have a okay. very good feeling about this episode because of Do that. You? Uh, last night, um, uh, between the two of us, of course, Richard is the true expert of superstitions. Mm. He is more superstitious than I am, so you've had more firsthand experience with it. Um, so last night, I was doing research on superstitions so that I could bring something to the table. Right. And got hungry, got uh, techish, yes. decided to leave my little uh, high-tech wizard tower here and yes, yes. to grab some food. And the woman who was serving me food as she was doing so, I noticed there was a... a what looked like a smudge, some ink on the underside of her arm. Thought about it, decided, you know, it's probably a tattoo, but should I ask? Should I not ask? You don't want it to turn out to be like a Holocaust serial number or some sort of in prison camp thing. So I said, you know, can I, can I see your tattoo? And she smiled and she lifted it up and printed along her arm was the number 13. And we'll see. 13 in many cultures is not an unlucky number. No, no, no. Yeah. Well, and it was really cool the way the 13 was written. And she smiled and she explained that she had been born on Friday the 13th. Oh, cool. Cool. And so uh, it, actually it's been a bit of an issue for her all her life. She says she runs into people who are very superstitious. Right. There are some people who react very negatively huh. to that kind of a thing. Uh, for her, getting a tattoo was a way of kind of you know standing up and saying, I, I, I'm okay that I was born on Friday right. the 13th. You know, I'm proud of it, so I'm rocking the tattoo. There you go, um, which I thought was very cool. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's like, and you know, to embrace it, I mean, nothing you can do about it. No, you, it's who you, you are. can't change your birthday. It's who you are. I like that. Well, and it's it's surprising. It can be very difficult at times when you do reach or encounter somebody who's being superstitious because you don't believe it at first. You think maybe right. they're they're kind of teasing you. Um, in fact, today I, I brought an umbrella. You know, what are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> that um, I, I I'm opening you crazy up. Crazy I know. I know. I'm just you know riding the edge, taking all the risks. That actually was a, a real crazy moment at my time at Canada Am. I had to um, showcase an umbrella like this. This one, right. 
a high tech umbrella. Uh, if I press the button, it lights up like. Oh yeah, this, so the, the the stem lights up. They're cool. Very very cool. And uh, we had planned to do a segment that was on spring gadgets, and I had right. a number of things, but the big showstopper it was all built around having this high tech umbrella. And I came in as I did first thing early in the morning, about six a.m. Started to test out my stuff. We were minutes away from going on the air, and both Bev and Seamus completely freaked out uh, that I'd open an umbrella in the studio. And wow. I mean, it was really over the top, very dramatic. I laughed because I thought they were merely teasing me or pulling my leg. When I opened up the umbrella again, they you know, just went into a real tizzy and a panic. Like how dare I was putting the whole show right into jeopardy. The, the wow. Turmoil. I was, I mean, really, it was like I, I just somebody, it was like having a, a friend for many years that just dressed me right down. How yeah, dare yeah. I come in here and do this sort of thing. And for me, confusing because I don't have a segment if I don't use the umbrella indoors. Right. So I'm looking at them like, I, you know, just go with me on this one. We'll get through the segment. Everything will be fine. We did. Thankfully, the studio didn't burn down. Uh, but it's interesting. You do encounter those kinds of things with, with people who you wouldn't expect. But see, I, uh, yeah, but see, I think the superstition isn't just opening it indoors. It's holding it over your head. Okay. You can open an umbrella indoors. Um, because, uh, uh, but I don't think you hold it over your head. Well, I mean, you know, the, the practical reason you would open an umbrella indoors is to shake the rain off. It's bad to right. leave it fold up all wet. But also, I mean, my view was that we work in show business, which has a longstanding tradition of using parasols and umbrellas, right. uh, that it's surprising to kind of see that superstition there. I mean, you know, where would singing in the rain be? Yeah. <laughs> Freaking out over umbrellas being opened indoors, but but anyway. but in show business though, I mean, I, I was uh, last night. I was at the Winter Garden Theater uh, in Toronto. I was a judge for uh, an event called Humor Me, which raises money for at-risk youth. We raised six hundred thousand dollars, and it was kind of an interesting thing. The first half of the show was uh, CEOs of companies. Like one guy manages a portfolio that's like $10 billion, billion with a B, not an M. Wow. And, uh, and uh, he did like five or six minutes. They have mentors, real comedians that mentor them. And then they do, you know, five or six minutes of stand-up. And we judge them. And then the second half of the show was Dana Carvey. He comes out and brings it home. But uh, backstage at the Winter Garden, a very old theater in Toronto. It used to be a vaudeville house, and it was a movie theater. And now it's a it's a, a legit theater again. And it's interesting because uh, I was thinking about it last night as I was walking around. All the superstitions. You don't mention the name Macbeth in a theater, no. and if you do, uh, you call it that Scottish play or whatever. And there's all sorts of like things you have to do: spin around three times and rub your head, and I don't know what it what all the things are, but. Um, uh, actors, I think in particular, and I guess uh, team players like sportsmen are also very superstitious. You know, that's why you see people with beards during the playoffs and that kind of thing. So all that stuff that you might think is a little nutty is, <laughs> I think, a little bit more widespread than you think. Right. Yes. Well, and, and I guess that's what I'm going to find out this week. Um, now, each week we also have been playing a, a fun little game called Battle of the Monsters. And this is a special edition of our Movie Pistols at Dawn for the yeah. month of October. Uh, we asked you last week to choose what we thought was the strongest monster between two uh, pairs. This Our theme was the 1970s, and we mm -hmm. chose sharks, meaning yeah. jaws specifically, and zombies, meaning mm -hmm. Night of the Living Dead. And uh, not too many people voted. 
Maybe right. you're not into interacting. You just want to look at us. So I know we're very pretty. Uh, but, uh, you know, those who did, uh, the clear winner was Jaws. Interesting. Now, you know, I, because I would have thought zombies would have taken it. And, again, uh, yes. you know, I'm not, uh, you know, I, these are, I, I'm just interested to see what people think. But this week, everywhere I've gone, <laughs> there has been zombie stuff. This is a, a, a picture that I took on Queen Street. It's an advertisement for a Halloween uh, DJ, like a, a show on Halloween with DJ called DJ Lazarus. But it's David Bowie as a zombie, and like it's it's it, every time I turn around, and I'll tell you a little bit more later about how yeah. I got to you know hang out with the king of the zombies uh, earlier this week. But everywhere I've gone, there's been zombie stuff. Everyone's talking about The Walking Dead, and you know these these pictures that I just showed you. Uh, the zombie walk is on Saturday here in Toronto. They're just everywhere. So I'm a little surprised that Jaws was the winner here. Well, I think, you know, in the subject of, I guess, fear of monsters, probably sharks are more terrifying to people than zombies. That real. Be, I guess. Yeah. Right. You know, whereas uh, zombies have become cultural icons where they're, right. they're almost friendly, even though they are disgusting and, and kind of, you know, uh, terrifying if you've got the right movie. Right. Uh, right. Say Walking Dead or or something like that. Well, I, um, I saw Land of the Dead earlier this week, uh, and uh, that movie is scary, but it's also funny. And that's something that, that goes along with these zombie movies, is quite often, particularly in George Romero's films, there's a lot of humor in them as well. Right, well, and he often, it's satirical, in a sense. Yeah. He's trying yeah. to be observant, not just trying to, to shock you or yeah. entertain you, but trying to make some observations. Yeah, uh, yeah and... and how did that go? How's George? Well, uh, I hosted an event with George. We, we screened Land of the Dead, and uh, it was mostly for film editors. It was thrown by the Canadian uh, Cinema Editors, CCE, and uh, it was mostly for editors, but, you know, we, we gave away some tickets and other people were invited, and I was amazed at the people that came. It was so interesting to see uh, the film editors who are all over the map. There's, you know, really straight ahead ones and really kind of freaky guys. They're all over the place, right? Uh, so they were all there. But then the fans that showed up, there were people that came in three-piece suits and there were like the, the hardcore guys with mohawks and stuff that showed up. And they, but they were all, had one thing in common is that when George Romero walked into the room, everyone was like, oh, <laughs> the man has arrived. And there was a guy who, uh, I don't know who he was, a young guy who came, and I was talking to him just before the show, and he said, you know, my birthday is in three days, and this is the best. He said, this is maybe the greatest night of my life. I get to be in the same room with George A. Romero. And he didn't disappoint. Uh, we, uh, we screened Land of the Dead, mm -hmm. which is one of the films that he shot here in Toronto. I'm just going to bring up a picture here from the event. And... Um, this is uh, George, uh, the editor in the middle, Michael Doherty, and then me on the end. Uh, and um, George was uh, lovely in the way he speaks about the movie. Mm. But, you know, I think people have this idea about him that, you know, he sits at home on his throne of blood, drinking, you know, spinal fluid out of a cat yeah. skull. And he's not that guy. You know, uh, he makes these uh, extraordinarily scary, creepy movies. He is a pioneer in 
uh, the, the world of zombies. Uh, but, you know, his favorite movie is Tales of Hoffman, which is uh, sort of a, a, a 1940s Michael Powell movie that all about classical music and opera. Um, and he's a very sort of gentle uh, guy who happens to make these insane movies. And it was really fascinating to hear him talk about that, uh, to hear him talk about how when he goes in public, invariably someone has a zombie movie that they've made that they want to give him. Look at it, George. You know, write to me. Tell me how great it is. And he says, you know, most often he said he doesn't really look at them all anymore because there's too many of them. He doesn't have time. But that so many of them that he gets uh, aren't about anything. He said, you know, his movies are all political commentary or they're commentary on consumer culture or they're, they're, there is a, a, a larger socio-political bent to everything that he does. Whereas, you know, so many of the zombie movies that his acolytes make and, and give him and that they've made in their backyards or they've shot on their own video cameras and stuff are just simply gore fests. And that's something that doesn't really interest him terribly. He wants the movies to actually be about something and to be, you know, thematically and, and visually and everything else different every time out. And if you look at all, you know, there's, there's really six of them. You know, uh, dawn, day, no, night, dawn, day of the living dead, or, you know, first of all, it was night of the living dead, day of the dead, dawn of the dead, uh, and then there's uh, land of the dead, survival and diary. I may have gotten the order mixed up there, but each of those films has a different feel to them, and that's something that he brings to it. And, you know, his idea is to make one zombie movie every decade. And that way to reflect the decade that has just happened or the one that's coming. And so that way, when you look at them as a whole, you get sort of this history from the 1960s all the way through to whenever he stops making them. And it, it hasn't quite worked that way, but it's sort of interesting to look at them. And Land of the Dead, which I didn't love when it came out, uh, is interesting to me because it seems to be more timely now than when it was released in 2005 because right. it's all about these dispossessed zombies who are taking back something from the extraordinarily wealthy 1% who live in Fiddler's Green, which is this protected zombie-free zone. So it was interesting that we did this event last Tuesday night, which well, was just a day or so after the, after the year anniversary of the Occupy movement in Toronto. No, completely, yeah. I mean, it's 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 funny how you know. I guess it's one of the problems of, of making a movie that talks about something that you think is prescient. Is right. nobody's going to get it at the time that it comes out? Right. But suddenly, yeah. I mean, you look at it now. Uh, it's it's fantastic. Well, and, it, and it's way funnier than I remember it being. And mm -hmm. uh, certainly, the jokes are there. If you're if you're if you're you know if you find a a priest with kind of a zombie bobblehead that attacks people funny, you're gonna laugh. You're gonna laugh at this movie. <laughs> But uh, but he was he was so much fun to talk to. Michael Doherty was great to see the two of them together, uh, uh, sort of reminiscing about how the, to get the movie made. And George, you know, he's really upfront uh, about a lot of things about working with the studios that he's worked with in the past and the benefits. And then the you know the flip side of working with the studio is that you know you're in, you're just a cog in a big machine, even though you're a legend. And you are right. the director. You are a cog in a very, very large machine. And, uh, you know, you don't always uh, get to uh, – it's, it's just because you're the director doesn't mean that you it's, – it's predestined that you're going to be calling all the shots. And so yeah. he was very upfront with that. It was a fascinating thing. I will post on the HeyAllYouZombies.com website uh, part of the conversation 
that we had. Uh, it's about 10 or 11 minutes. And then there's a much longer video that I'll post another time uh, when it's all ready to go uh, that has the whole Q&A. It's about an hour long. Wow, cool. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that'll be good. Yeah. <laughs> Looking forward to that. Um, and speaking of zombies, this past weekend was uh, World Zombie Day. And so around the world, you had all sorts of cool celebrations. Um, now, here in Toronto, we wait. We Our zombie walk occurs on the 20th, but you have yeah. other places, Winnipeg and Manitoba, I believe, both had their zombie walks on the past weekend. But important, speaking of George Romero, his hometown, Pittsburgh, they have a huge celebration on World Zombie Day. And what I like is they go beyond just having a zombie walk. They have a bunch of events that they organize, right. uh, which includes uh, a ugly pageant. They have people all lined <laughs> up, which I thought was quite cool. Um, the uh, zombie Olympics. Oh, cool. Yeah, which included shot put, where contestants were given um, like a dismembered body parts, like a head or an arm, and then everybody had to compete to see how far <laughs> they had to toss it. I love that. There was a zombie shuffle race. Uh, what was interesting is one zombie failed to actually cross the finish line. He was scoring right. so slow and having such a hard time. He actually came in first place. He was deemed to be the winner of that race. Right. Um, and uh, and a couple of other things. But what the one event that really worked best out of them all was the brain eating contest. Oh. And I'm throwing is it jello? Uh, yeah, so what they do is, and it was, it really, really went down very, very well. They had a long, huge table, lots of contestants all sitting there. Uh, it's like a pie-eating contest. You're not allowed to use your hands. They have this massive plate with a huge uh, raspberry jello brain that you have to dive into. And to really make it hard, the raspberry jello has uh, little bits of gummy bears and gummy mm. worms frozen yeah. inside. The judges heckle you while you're eating to, try to get you to really vomit and throw up. Uh, it went fantastic. The decision, I don't know who chose to go with raspberry jello, but it worked so well. Well, it's, it's, it was a good choice. I, I, I'd like to think that someone put a lot of thought into that. Someone, they experimented with a few other flavors and colors, you know. Yeah, it just it's fantastic because people choke on it, and you get these little flecks of raspberry <laughs> floating all over on this white table. It just looks absolutely disgusting. Wow. Wow. Um, anyway, so that's a... Uh, um, uh, it's a frame from a YouTube video that I found that actually recorded the event. I'll throw that on the HeyAllYouZombies.com website. Uh, well, also, well, it's funny. I just wanted to, to bring you're talking about George Romero and, you know, Pittsburgh and the zombie walk. Um, somebody asked him on Tuesday night whether he goes to the zombie walk here in Toronto. Right. And uh, apparently this year, some of the cast members from the original Night of the Living Dead movie are going to be there. Oh, but, cool. Um, I, 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 you know, someone asked him, do you go? Yeah. And he said, he just kind of smiled and it became quite clear. And I, I said, well, there's no way you could be, you'd need a bodyguard. You would need 20 bodyguards. He would get torn apart. Can you imagine if George Romero showed up in the middle of the zombie walk in Toronto, the chaos that would ensue? Romero. Uh, does not go to the zombie walks because he would be torn apart literally by the very people that he gave birth to in a lot of ways by kind of creating the modern zombie movie. So if you're going to the zombie walk in Toronto on Saturday, if you've been to any of the other ones, don't look for a tall man with big glasses because he's probably not going to be there. 
No. Well, and it's sort of the same problem that they have with Comic-Con. There are certain personalities, say Kevin Smith, for example, yeah. that if they show up, it just becomes a real issue for everybody else to yeah. try to have a good time. And then at the same time, I think, you know, the whole point is that it should be uh, for the participants to try right. to sort of have their, their, their good time. Uh, and let's see. So let's say that you are going to get into a high-stakes poker game. Okay. And I mean high stakes enough that you might lose an arm or a leg. Ooh. Well, you might want to try <laughs> Bicycle is offering this year for as a Christmas, you know, uh, yeah. gift that you can buy for your zombie friends, the Bicycle Zombie Playing Cards. Uh, what I love about this is not only uh, do the cards have all the sort of different zombie characters that are on involved in terms of the kings and queens and jacks right. that kind of thing but many of the cards actually contain survival tips oh so there you find go, yourself yeah. in yeah. a zombie apocalypse so this this is actually a really good deck of cards to throw in a knapsack for your emergencies or anything like that you end up playing during that downtime as you're waiting for the helicopters to arrive but that's right but you see i'll tell you here's another example like you know why how is it possible that jaws beat zombies when there's like paraphernalia, I don't know. I just don't get it. I would have yeah. thought zombies in our poll would have been hands down the winner. <laughs> well, we'll find out today uh, how people feel about the, the next item that we've got yeah. set up. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, one last uh, zombie thing I wanted to talk about. Speaking of zombie movies, and I yeah. kind of agree that we're at the point where we've been inundated with so many um, low-budget or poorly-made yeah. zombie movies that you could say, look, we never need to see another zombie movie again. Well, there is one. There's one I really need to see, uh, and that's The Goon. Oh, The Goon uh, so looks cool. The Goon is very cool. If you, if you haven't seen the clip that's online, The Goon is a comic book uh, written by a man named Eric Powell. It is a series, very comical series, that takes place during the time of Prohibition. Uh, the goon is the big guy in yeah. the back, and the front guy, is uh, his name is Frankie, and they speak in that same pattern that you would have for monsters at that time. You know, yeah, yeah. It's, not about, uh, it's, it's not about money. It's sawbucks. It's clams. It's, right, you know, right, right. Hey, Nathan, what you got going here? That kind of thing. I love that. Well, uh, David Fincher has uh, wanted to turn that into a feature film. Wow. And he actually had partnered with Blur Studios, which is one of the top animation studios uh, in the world. And a couple of years ago, they got together, and David Fincher said, look, I'll, I'll try to get the money men. I'll try to get uh, some Hollywood studios on board. We'll, we'll do a whole kind of thing. Put together a pitch. They actually made a short clip. It's about 90 seconds to a minute right. long. The goon is played by Clancy Brown. Brilliant casting. Big, right. huge, deep voice. You may know Clancy Brown from uh, Highlander movies, one of my favorite movies, but also right. the deep bass voice of, uh, you know, Crest... Uh, Mr. Crab on on <laughs> kids will know him yeah on SpongeBob you know that kind of thing uh, but also Frankie is played by Paul Giamatti oh an incredible job of playing that cool. smarmy smartass these two yeah guys. yeah yeah the, the the clip that they've got out there is of Frankie sitting in a bar uh, he's trying to scam drinks when the goon comes in and has him babysit this zombie that the goon has right. grabbed and tied up. And the zombie's all scaly. He's got a dead fish hanging out of his mouth yeah. and all sorts of stuff. And Frankie is annoyed that he's saddled with the task until he realizes that the zombie actually has a wallet in his back mm -hmm. pocket. Opens it up. It's full of money. So we then ensue uh, what hijinks that Frankie gets up to with the zombie in terms of 
entertaining himself all night long. The zombie becomes his drinking buddy. Right, it's right, right. hilarious. Well, they made that clip. They showed it at Comic-Con. They've been shopping it around to all the movie studios, and it's a big, fat no right now. It's just not going to happen. And why is this? Do we know? Uh, apparently, it's a combination of many studios feel that the amount of money that would be required to make a fully animated film is not going to be justified when it's only going to be adults that are coming to see it. If, if right. this was uh, a Pixar-style film... Yeah, much more kid-friendly. Yeah. yeah, that kind of thing. So um, years have gone by. There's been enough frustration. David Fincher, Bluer Studios, uh, Eric Powell have now taken to Kickstarter. And so there is a Kickstarter page wow. where zombie fans can go and donate money to get the goon made. Now, it's not about making the movie itself. All David Fincher at this point is looking for, he wants $400,000 to do what's called a test reel. That's where they take right. pencil tests. They yeah. want to make the entire movie as a pencil test to be able to find backers for it. Of course, with Kickstarter, you don't know. They may end up getting the entire budget. There have been video right. games right there that have earned as much as $3 million, $5 million towards the production. Yeah, and musicians that have, you know, said, I need 100000 bucks to make a record, and ended up with a million two and all that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. I can't remember what her name was, but, yeah. Well, I will uh, put up the, the actual animation that they have, the test animation that they've done on HeyAllYouZombies.com, plus a link right. to Kickstarter. I think it's not only great in terms of I, I want to see this movie. Yeah. <laughs> the comic book is fantastic. The <laughs> casting, Paul Giamatti, Clancy Brown, you couldn't get a better yeah, couple yeah. of individuals to do that kind of stuff. But also, I mean, I remember a time in which animated adult films was quite uh, a well-established genre. You think right. of the, the age of Ralph Bakshi. Yeah, Felix the Cat, Cat, stuff like that, uh, yeah. You know, oh, Fritz Metal, uh, all those movies. And then that kind of ended. And I don't know if it was Cool right. World that put the final nail in the coffin or uh -huh. Heavy Metal 2000 that were really bad. But I would love, love, love if Kickstarter were to become a, a venue for that kind of genre to bounce back. And we might actually get some proper adult entertainment in animated form. Well, I just think it's so interesting that David Fincher is going to Kickstarter. You know, the idea yeah. that the guy makes Academy Award-nominated movies, the whole thing, but still wants to do something a little bit outside the box. But, you know, so many people now are uh, looking for alternative ways of financing their products, uh, having more artistic control by coming up with ways to get the money themselves. I know filmmakers in Canada that do things that if they want to make a small film or a short film, an experimental thing, whatever, they'll throw a big party and you pay 25 bucks to walk through the door. And, you know, if you get enough people, you get enough money to get, you know, the ball rolling anyway. And I think it's really interesting that people aren't just relying on studios or in Canada, telefilm or all the other sort of regular outlets that they're actually looking, you know, beyond that because that money is slow to come and it takes, you know, a, a lot of effort to get it. Not that raising money the other way doesn't take a lot of effort, but it, it's, an it's an interesting way to really be a part of every step of the process and then, you know, likely not be uh, answerable to uh, the people that just wrote a check for, you know, here's your 50 million bucks. So, Completely, like yeah. It. I like so it. I It'll be interesting to see how that kind of develops, and then maybe that's a venue for even George to kind of go to to yeah. get some of the projects that he wants up and running. Right. Yeah, no, I, I think so. And I think, you know, he's he's got any number of movies that he wants to make at any time, George Romero. Uh, and so it'll be interesting. I mean, you know, he's, he's still a very much a going concern. So, you know, we haven't seen the last movie from him, not by a long shot, even though he's got this 
legacy already and people know the zombie movies and love them so much but uh, there'll be more and i don't think that they'll necessarily all be zombie movies coming from no no i would love to see him go back and do something with martin yeah. uh, i thought that was a fantastic movie and that could be something that could be reinterpreted as an animated film for example if you got a, a japanese animation company yeah the way that they did come some of the animated sequences for kill bill i mean you could yeah. really approach martin i think with a very pulpy graphic novel feel and it would be fantastic yeah it would be fantastic yeah yeah it's funny you know that the with the night of the living dead uh you know arguably the most famous movie that he's made uh and you know due to a little paperwork glitch he it's, it's in public domain yeah he doesn't make any money from it it just it hurts me to think about such a thing. <laughs> <laughs> all right so we did promise that this was going to be about superstitions um i for the last week i've been trying to think if i have any superstitions and i've come up empty so I'm going to. Well, you're a man <laughs> of science, you know. Yeah, in a way, but I mean, even then, I think it's sort of you know something that you develop from childhood. So there are right. men of science who have that kind of thing. But so I'm, I'm really am keen to hear you talk about um, your heritage. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, as I was sort of started to say last week, uh, I grew up in a in a, a very specific part of Nova Scotia called the South Shore. And people in and along that region have a different accent from people that are from any other part of the of the country or any part of the province. Uh, there is very specific things that happen there, and there, there's a very specific sort of way of life. And particularly, I haven't lived there for 30 years, but um, I think back when I lived there, it was still uh, it, it didn't feel to me like it had really entered in to present day just yet in, a, in, a, in the most charming quaint and interesting of ways hmm. and one of the things is that people are down there are superstitious or certainly were when i lived there and you know we've all heard uh red sky in the morning sailors take warning red sky at night sailors delight you know and these kind of sayings to me uh were just part of virtually everyday conversation as I was growing up, these weren't, you know, the crazy old lady, you know, getting on the street that would cackle at you, red sky at night, you know, <laughs> this was just something that, you know, that, that people talked about you know, quite openly. And, and um, that, that whole area, uh, Queens County, Lunenburg, where the, the Blue Nose was built, which is right next door and where I was born and beyond. Uh, are very superstitious. And so there was a book written by a guy called Vernon Oikel, who's a writer from down there called Red Sky at Night. And I'm part of it. And and he asked me to uh, uh, talk about my the superstitions. And I mean, listen, there's hundreds of them. And, and it's funny because I wouldn't say, if you asked me, I wouldn't say that I was a superstitious person. But I would never, ever in my life put a pair of shoes on the table. And not just for sanitary reasons. It's just not the thing you're, you're inviting. You're inviting terror into your home if you do that. So just don't do that. And, not and, even if a brand new pair of sneakers that you're, you need to put laces on and you're looking for a convenient spot just to kind of throw them and lace them up. That No, it's just... Andrea came home the other day with a new pair of shoes in a shoebox. And as you walk into our place, the dining room is sort of off to the, to the left. And she walked in and she threw the box on the on the table and I was standing in the kitchen looking over and I was like and I thought I you know just bring it back hold on to what you're feeling and I couldn't I ran over and I was like what are you doing and she of course had no idea 
but and the shoes were in a bag in a box on the table. It wasn't even just that. So wow. uh, yeah, so it, some of these have stayed with me, but there are some nutty ones that that you know I've heard that I that I don't uh, uh, subscribe to, but uh, people uh, down uh, there. Um, and, and a lot of them, a lot of these superstitions, of course, because of the ocean, which is the predominant thing when you grow up down there, the ocean is whether you are a sailor or a fisherman or not, it is a part of your life. It influences virtually every aspect of your life. And, uh, and so a lot of these people have uh, superstitions that are born of that. But um, uh, they... The, the, the Nova Scotian mittens that sailors would wear were always made of white wool. And, uh, and sort of, I'm, I'm reading this now, mittens of any other color were thought to bring bad luck because there's a story of a captain uh, of a fishing schooner who, after discovering that a member of the crew had brought gray mittens with him, turned the schooner around and returned to port. That's how superstitious people are. Wow. The offending mittens were removed from the vessel and then they could go on and go back out. But, I mean, if you have white mittens and you use them on a ship, they're going to get dirty. They're going to become gray. Yeah, well, it's <laughs> like, possible. Yeah. But, see, the idea here, the thing <laughs> that because fishermen are, are so uh, – and, and sailors <laughs> are so superstitious, uh, gray gloves mm -hmm. were in those days, and maybe still are, I don't know, worn by undertakers. And so you were inviting that kind of, you know, bad vibe on with you. Wow, okay. And so there's there's and there's there's loads of these superstitions. The one that I uh, contributed to the book, and again, this is another one that's very common down there, is the crows. And I don't know if anyone you know up here in your upper Canada, I don't know if anyone up here uh, knows this, but you know, as you're driving along, if you see one crow, that is a very bad thing, because the saying goes: one crow sorrow, two crows joy, three crows a letter four crows a boy, and it goes on, you know, there's probably some old person down there that can go, 157 crows means that, you know, they, they, they have the whole thing. Um, and, and, and people down there, you'll see it, and what you will see is if you see one crow, you will see older people do this. They do this, and they kiss their thumb at the crow. Really? And I don't, yeah, and that negates the the bad luck that could possibly come along with it. I don't know what it means. I don't know what the kiss thing is all about. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's a very common one down there. And and you know, I mean, I, I kind of love the folksy charm that a sure, lot of yeah. these things have, and I, I do find it quite fascinating. And and as I say, I wouldn't really consider myself uh, a super or a, a superstitious person, but I don't walk under ladders because only fools do that. I don't walk under ladders. I, I, I don't really love the idea of a black cat walking in front of me. And these aren't things that I think about, but I've been thinking about it because I knew we were going to talk about it. And it is true, like, I'll find myself walking around a black cat without really thinking about it on the street. Really? Yeah. yeah. Wow, okay. <laughs> well, that's very, very cool. And, and they, they call a group or a gathering of crows a murder. Mm. Right, so I, I'm, which is yeah, yeah. But again, see, I don't really understand then why one crow would be sorrow if a well, group was called a murder. Right? Yeah, well, I guess there may one, not be a lot of logic behind this, yeah. <laughs> as you may have gathered from these superstitions. No, and I guess the idea is that the one crow is a bad omen, an indicator that others will follow. It's kind yeah. of, I don't know. I guess it's like when you see a drop of water in the stream, it might become a wow. That was interesting. Yeah. 
might become a, a huge flood. So, you know, I guess, you know, the one crow is a trickle of, of bad things that are coming. Right. Okay, now I'm just looking up here. Uh, okay, a common superstition is that bad luck will come to a person who places shoes on a table, whether in the form of a family argument or risking death to a family member. So this is very serious stuff. Wow, um, okay. <laughs> and uh, um, now, even among those who are not superstition, superstitious, shoes can be associated with contamination. And some sources ascribe the origin to the fact that criminals were hanged while still wearing their shoes. Oh, okay. Uh, it may have something to do with death, and that the idea of placing a new pair of shoes on a table would signify that someone had just died or that you would have bad luck for the rest of the day, quarrel with someone or lose a job. So, you know, they all, all these superstitions, to my mind anyway, seem to trace back to death and sort of ideas surrounding death. So let the undertaker with the gray gloves or the, the thing. And, and, uh, and some of the connections may be a little tenuous, but I'll tell you, they've, they've stayed with me. Sure. Well, you know, if I had to think about the shoes, I would historically shoes have only been really valuable more recently, say in the right. last couple of centuries, because they've been really well made. And, you know, that would be the one article of clothing that people would tend to steal more than anything off of a dead body. Right. So maybe that's kind of the association, often that phrase of dead man's shoes. You well, you never put a dead man's shoes on the table. Right, right? Yeah. Only a nut would do that. <laughs> Only a nut would do that. Um, so that's interesting. And a lot of that, that comes from, I guess, sort of um, a maritime background. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, you have to remember that, you know, these the, the superstitions, you know, sailors and people coming in from all over the world. And so these these superstitions are are kind of the the result of years of immigration and people coming and going and folklore and oral tradition right. that have created these frankly kind of insane things that people live their lives by. <laughs> but uh, did your your family um, uh, subscribe to a lot of these superstitions? Was it something well, no. that your neighbors did? Um... No, like you know, it's, it's the funny thing, but my. My family didn't, except that you would never put a pair of shoes on a table. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's not like we ever discussed any of this. It's not like, you know, well, you know, it's really bad luck if, uh, you know, if you if you step on the threshold of the door when you walk out, oh, you know, you know witches are going to come. You know, I don't know. Like, we, no, none of this was ever discussed. But, you know, you had it in the back of your mind. Right. Why tempt the gods? I lived... In a town that was very old, and there was a there's a graveyard right in the middle of town. There's a bunch of them, but there's a graveyard right in the middle of town um, that has gravestones that go back to like 16 whatever. Mm. And uh, it is claimed that if you run around the graveyard like three times at Halloween at midnight, you know the devil appears or something. I can't. But but it's a it's if you ask anyone from the town, they'll be like, oh yeah, oh yeah, the, the cemetery on Main Street. You don't run around. I mean, who would run around that thing? You don't want the devil to appear. Like people, <laughs> people know about this. It's not an obscure legend that the old folks whisper about. You know, this is. This is something that people know, you know, <laughs> and accept as fact. Right. You know? Yeah. And it's sort of, I guess, tradition or part of the identity of the town yeah. itself. Yeah. Very, very interesting. <laughs> um, okay. So I've been doing some research on mm -hmm. the topic and also, I mean, there are things that I remember specifically about things like fear and phobia that right. I kind of wanted to share. I thought you'd be very interested in. 
Uh, Your scientific debunking will not make me put shoes on my table. I'm not debunking. I'm, okay. I'm showing you things that I think are very fascinating. Right. So um, uh, there are a couple of scientific experiments that were kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. um, going back, say, about the 1920s and 1930s, people tried to um, grasp or tackle the idea of fear and phobia. And the, the yeah. one question that was asked, is this something that you were born with or is it something that you learn? as you get older? That was the, the real key uh, question. And there was um, a man named J.B. Watson who worked at one of the universities, so John Hopkins University. And his theory was that it's not something that you're born with. Right. That although you are born with uh, instincts for fear, meaning that if lightning were to, to strike or uh, you had a large animal in the room and you know growling at you, <laughs> your instincts would, of course, kick in for right. survival. But you weren't born with, say, a specific fear of snakes. You right. weren't born with a specific fear of clowns. The problem was how he could prove that, how you could set up an experiment. And so what I'm going to talk about is something that's highly unethical, very shocking today. Okay. Uh, I'm mentioning this even though, I mean, our show is called Hail You Zombies. So if you are of a sensitive nature, Chances are, I figure you're okay because of the name of our show, but I'm just warning you, I'm going to show some images that may uh, be a little unsettling. Okay. Uh, and this is something that many people discuss about today, very, you know, whether what the ethics were. It's an experiment that wouldn't be performed today. I'll, right. I'll, I'll say it that way. What he did was he tried to find someone who hadn't yet been exposed to the world enough to develop fears. And so right. he took a nine-month-old baby. Uh, this doesn't seem right already. Oh, no, I know. Uh, named Albert. There's Albert. Oh, uh, Albert. So Albert pure. So cute. innocent. So oh, young. Yes. And he, he brought Albert in with a wet nurse, as you can see in the back, holding him. And in this room, introduced Albert to a number of things that most adults would be afraid of. So in this photograph, what they're giving Albert is a box full of newspapers that have been set on fire. What? Yes, that's what you're looking at there. It's hard ah. because this is black and white. Yeah, but you can uh, and, see right down sort of in the front here. Yeah. yeah, and as you can see, Albert does not react with fear at all to the flames. In right. fact, he uh, reacts with interest because it's bright, it's colorful, it's moving. There is no born fear of fire. That is something that you learn. You have to touch right. it for the first time and have your, your mom say, ouch, hot, hot, don't touch, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, this they would do over a period of time. They would right. bring Albert in, they would introduce him to these objects and wait to see if he would ever show any signs of fear. Right. Uh, in addition to the flame and other things, they also introduced him to animals. So this right. is Albert with a little rat that's in between <laughs> his legs. Uh, and as you can see, Albert has no problems that there's a rat climbing all over yeah. him. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it becomes one of the highlights of the, the experiments that when Albert comes in, he's got this cute little furry creature to play with. Uh, he likes the rat a great deal. Uh, in addition to the rat, they also introduced Albert to a large menacing dog, uh, to a monkey. Uh, they had this one is of the, so outrageously uh, unsafe. I, I know, a I know. Monkey, an angry monkey. We're gonna put Albert with an angry monkey. It'll be awesome. <laughs> they also had one of the assistants come in wearing a very menacing clown mask, very frightening. All of these things, Albert did not react to uh, in any way other than, you know, being a baby going, well, this is interesting stimuli. I'm, I'm kind of keen on it. So the next step is the next week they would repeat this again. But when they did, 
they had a man stand behind Albert with a steel pipe and a hammer, okay? And when they brought in the object, the man behind would hit the steel pipe and creating a loud, shocking disturbance. Right. And this is one of the things that even if you're born, you, you will recognize when there's a loud disturbance. Yeah, in the room. yeah. And so Albert would immediately get be disrupted. He'd be a little uncomfortable. He's unsure what is going on. And that's right. when they would once again hand him the rat, hand him the dog and the monkey and that kind of thing. And they did this for a long period of time. And it got to the point where poor Albert was really upset with what was happening. They were really making him uncomfortable. So then they began to stop making that noise. They got the guy with the pipe to go away and they began to introduce those objects once again. So even though now there's nobody behind Albert making him frightened or afraid, he really gets right. upset when they bring the rat back in or right. here's a rabbit that they've got for him. He should be very happy, but he's not. Uh, clearly, clearly unhappy and upset. And so the theory is that over time, uh, poor Albert has become conditioned to the point where he now has a phobia of clown masks, rats, <laughs> rabbits, <laughs> to big dogs, monkeys, and boxes of fire and other things. <laughs> boxes. Who was who was Albert's parents? Like who were her were his parents that would allow this to happen? Well, as you can imagine, I mean, this is something that people who go to university and study psychology, there is a lot of people interested to know more about poor Albert. Yeah, what happened to him? uh, He just doesn't exist on the historical records. There has been one cemetery gravestone found where they think that's the resting place of Albert. But in terms of any information upon the man's life of what this experience at a very young age must have done to him, there's no information about that whatsoever. Um, wow, I, you can only imagine that one gravestone. If it, if it says something like, uh, I'm afraid of everything as his epitaph, maybe then, you know, here lies Albert. He hated clowns. We don't know why, you know. <laughs> Man. Yes. That um, is outrageous. Yeah, completely. Uh, the, the early days of science are not something to be terribly uh, proud of. There were lots yeah. of, you don't want to know what Pavlov was up to. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But, uh, I mean, it's interesting in that it, it, it was the wrong methodology to try right. to explore the situation, but it did prove the underlining principle that we aren't born with these theor- fears. Right. Uh, if you meet someone who's afraid of rats or they're afraid of snakes, that's something that somehow they have picked up. Right. So if you have a phobia or a fear about something, then you know there's the association where at some point in your life you've seen rats and either – uh, an older brother or a sister or a parent made a big fuss about it, and that was repeated enough times that now you yourself feel that that very anxiety every time that you see that creature or that situation. Wow. I mean, I, see, I still think, I mean, Albert notwithstanding, right. that, that there must be some kind of instinct, though, still. Like, and I only think, and this really, is, this is unrelated, but... You know, just in terms of instinct, um, years ago I had a little cat. I had a cat named Francis, and he was an amazing, awesome little cat with a funny little overbite, and he was brown, and he had a little white tuft in the front, and he was a Norwegian forest cat. I didn't know that when I bought him. I bought it. I bought a cool-looking little cat that, you know, from the corner, whatever. Yeah. And, uh, and he was a lovely cat. We had him for a long time. Uh, but uh, I found out later on he was a Norwegian forest cat, and he stalked things. 
but it wasn't, you know, we never lived in a house. We never had mice or anything. So he would stalk uh, a desk or he loved mushrooms for some reason. He was stalk, but that instinct was him. He was bred hundreds of years ago to mm-hmm. stalk and hunt uh, gophers, I think, and pull them out of their holes. That's why he has a weird little overbite. And, uh, and bring them up. but that instinct was still in him, even though he virtually had never been outside. He was a, we adopted him when he was a little older. He had never been outside and, and didn't want to go outside. He loved being inside. So he lived his entire life inside and had very little interaction with anything other than other cats, but still had this instinct. So somewhere in us, I think there is an instinct for fear maybe, or an instinct Maybe it's the instinct for fear that's in us, and then we have to be taught what to be afraid of. Right. Well, I think the um, what happens is that uh, emotions, the, the emotional part of our brain, can be very strong to the point right. where it can overwhelm the rational side of our brain, and so that's where you can get these interesting sort of conditions that arise. Uh, and I there there is this belief, anyways, that there is an instinctual animal part of our brain. Right. Uh, our brains are very wired towards patterns and pattern recognition. You walk outside, you look at a faucet, you might see a face there. We're really good at sort of noticing patterns right, right. and correlations. Yeah, I see what you, yeah. and you yeah. know what's it, like uh, around the corner from me here, there is a, a like a fire hose outlet. It's old. It's a, you know, there's a giant old building next to where, but it's got uh, a, a, every time I look at it, it I see. Uh, in the configuration of like, there's two bolts of I see a face. Right. I see the pattern, that's, and I see it every single day. I mean, I look at it and go, no, no, still there's, you know, there's the face again, <laughs> every day. And that's that's something that kicks in in terms of our learning process. In that yeah. there are times in which you may recognize a pattern. You've performed a certain action, and there's a corresponding result every time you do it. Now, it may not really be. Uh, the, the real explanation for what's happening. So uh, a maritime myth, for example, is that you can cure scurvy by simply touching soil. Right. Sailors often believe this. Of course, the reality is that in order to touch soil, you have to get off the ocean. And the yeah. moment that you're on land, you're eating better. And that's the real explanation. But yeah. that yeah. correlation, that pattern had repeated enough that it became sort of a, a unique habit that is formed. What's unusual, though, is that we develop an anxiety about it where we – simply don't want to risk changing that habit to, to, to try to correct it. It's just, you know, the anxiety takes over. It's very, very fearful. It's like, no, 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 no. Well, if it's, it, well, that's it. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, it's, right. it's that thing, right? If, if, if this <laughs> thing that I do every day, uh, this OCD thing that I do, if I do that every day <laughs> and then something good happens afterwards, of course, I'm going to do that every day, you know? Well, uh, apparently, um, I was reading online, and again, this is bad information, but it, it might be true. Jennifer Aniston, the actress, yeah. will not board an airplane until she's had the opportunity to touch the outer hull of the airplane with her right foot. What? Just Yeah, apparently, that's this thing. She has to do that in order to feel safe that the airplane's not going to crash. Uh, Serena Williams has to bounce the tennis ball five times before she serves it. Uh, lots of, you know, little factors like that. I mean, I can see the bounce of the ball five times, whatever, you're out there say, the touching the foot to the hull is a little uh, beyond, I think, uh, yeah. uh, being reasonable. Yeah. Well, and, and sometimes I think those are just um, tricks to restore confidence, tricks to kind of yeah. feel yourself comfortable about something that's going to have anxiety. But I'll, I'll, I'll share with you a very interesting 
uh, experiment that people have repeated several times. Um, after Watson and the years had gone by and people started to get a little more ethical in terms of their experiments, there was a man named Skinner who began to perform similar experiments with pigeons. And it wasn't so much about fear as about learned behavior. Right. And that uh, he could teach the pigeons that when you get uh, a certain response, then the pigeons would get food. So right. Right. push down on the lever, you'll get food. You push down on this lever, you'll get water. But he would take it to the point where he could get the pigeons to do all sorts of crazy things. And one of his tricks was to unveil uh, a series of pigeons. And each pigeon had its own strange quirk that it would do before it would eat. There was one pigeon that would turn in a circle three times right. before it would be fed. Another one that had to look all the way to the left. Uh, you know, as a demonstration that to these pigeons, because of the conditions of which they had been raised, in their minds, it made sense that if you turn around three times, food will appear. It, yeah. it, there's no consciousness to question the fact that maybe it's not really required. Just that's what you have to do. That's yeah, it's yeah. part of the process. But to take it to an entertaining sort of spot, there are two researchers in England that did an interesting experiment with goldfish. Right. Two goldfish. All right. So the first goldfish is set up in a fish tank and they get the fish to associate a soccer ball with food. Every time the soccer ball appears, fish gets fed. Uh, and then they, they manage to, in little baby steps, get it to the point where if the fish pushes against the ball, then it'll get food. And they keep going until they got a soccer net on one end, on the north end of the tank. They put a right. soccer net, and when the, the fish manages to push or nudge the ball to that soccer net, <laughs> it's That's rewarded awesome. with food. That's and awesome. To the point that all you'd have to do is put a soccer ball in the tank, and the fish would push that ball to the soccer net. Because they want to get fed. Right. But that's fish number one. And they do that with fish number one, pushing it towards the net on the north side. Right. Tank two has a net on the south side. And again, same process to the point where the fish pushes the ball into the south net to get food. Right. When they've gotten to that point where it is repeatable time and time and time again, they then create one tank with two fish uh, gold right. nets on either side and one ball. And sure enough, let me pull up the image here for you. What happens is the two fish compete to they try play to soccer. get the ball. Yeah. They play soccer to get the ball into the other net in order to be able to get the food. That's crazy. <laughs> this uh, this uh, reminded me of the pigeon thing. Reminded me of something. And I mean, it's not learned behavior, but it is unethical, crazy, bad things to oh, do. Yeah. Uh, Colonel Tom Parker, who was Elvis's manager, Elvis Presley's manager for many years, was a, a Kearney guy before he became a, a manager. And he was he became very famous for his dancing chicken show. Oh, no. And so, you know, it wasn't the thing where he trained these chickens uh, like these other people who have spent a lot of time teaching fish how to play soccer. All he did, he had a little stage, and the he'd put the chickens on the stage, and the chickens would stand there, and then pretty soon they'd start to do this weird little herky-jerky dance because he had a hot plate under this little stage that he'd turn on, and the stage would get really hot, and they would sort of like uh -huh. look like they were dancing because they were just moving their feet to keep off the heat. <laughs> yes, that's it's that's not right. That's it's not dark. right. That's very that's not evil. right at all. Um, so let's see a, a couple of fun things that I found out about uh, superstitions around yep. the world. Um, doo -doo 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 -doo. In Turkey, 
it is considered uh, a wish will come true if you say it 40 times. 40? 40, 40 times. Four zero. You have to really see. want something. You have to really want something, <laughs> and you better make sure that you don't have an older brother or sister who's going to interrupt you. Yeah. That would be really, really bad. Um, do, 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 do. Right. Dead donkeys. Um, <laughs> dead don donkeys are considered – there was a period in time in which people um, really esteemed – a lot of value to donkeys. They were thought to right. be very sensitive creatures who, like elephants, would know when they were going to die. They were thought right. to know each other, that kind of thing. So the idea was that donkeys apparently, it was believed, it's not necessarily true, that they would go off and find <coughs> some gentle little place to pass away. Right. So it was felt you would never see a dead donkey. It was just considered rare. So if one did show up, uh, you should jump over it three times. If you came across the, the body of a dead donkey, or make a sandwich out of the hair of a donkey, dead donkey, to cure a cough. I could use that because these halls that I'm taking aren't doing the trick. I need a dead donkey. Dead or, or donkey sprinkle, hair sandwich. Or sprinkle their toenail clippings over your uh, enemies. Yeah, no, see, that. like, <laughs> you know, that just seems to me like, you know, uh, disrespectful. You know, it just seems like, oh, you know what? What's the shittiest thing we could do to our enemies? Donkey toenails. <laughs> yeah. That'll get them. That'll show them. Uh, uh, where's the other one I was looking at here? Do, 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 do. Uh, there's a. Uh, the Hawthorne flower is an interesting one because right. um, people didn't really know much about it, what was happening scientifically, but the effect right. is very unusual. Hawthorne has a chemical in it uh, called. Thiamolide. Anyways, I had it written down, but just it's a long word. All right. And uh, the, these flowers, they would bloom usually within the month of May. And when they bloomed <laughs> out in a field, okay, right. beautiful, gorgeous field intermingled with all the other flowers that are out there, you have the breeze coming in, it would emit this chemical. And this chemical happens to be in uh, human semen. It's one of the, 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 the things that comprises the scent of human semen. Right. And so this flower ended up getting the association with fertility and love. And people right. would go out into these fields and gather up these flowers and just be put into a wonderful mood. Young men would say, you know, I'm going to bring this home to my mistress because, you know, then it'll put her in the mood and we'll have a wonderful night. I'm going to bring the semen flower home. Yeah. <laughs> but you take it home. And when it's indoors, it's now isolated from all the other plants in the field. It's now in an enclosed space where you don't have a lot of ventilation. That chemical builds up and becomes very pungent. And it's also uh, the same chemical that is present when a body decays that helps create that sense. Wow. There's that unusual link between birth and death right there. Mm. And so it's become bad luck. For anyone, much like your, your shoes, to bring those flowers into the home because it's considered to be a reminder of death. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, as we said earlier, you know, all these superstitions, or a great many of them, are about death. It's not, you know, something bad's going to happen to you. It's like you are going to die, and it's going to be unpleasant in the way that it happens. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'll finish off with um, two, I guess, of the, the biggies. That okay. Are right there. So the first one I'm going to talk about what as most people consider to be the unluckiest date uh, of the year, which is Friday the 13th, right. uh, that young woman who had the tattoo in her arm. And uh, actually, that's more of a Western belief. In right. Japan, the number to avoid is four. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, if you go there in Japan, there are buildings that don't have a fourth floor, that, yeah. you know, much like we don't have a 13th floor. Yeah. Uh, in actuality, the unluckiest day uh, is actually Monday the 27th. Oh, uh, why is that? Uh, this is based on information provided by uh, insurance companies. <laughs> so that's funny. Of every day in the year, Monday the 27th is the day they will have the highest number of accident claims. Uh, and it's all sorts of different accidents, not just automobiles, but stuff that happen around the home. The theory is that usually Monday the 27th follows after a long weekend. Right. Uh, it's the time in which people have been drinking heavily or yeah. are just out of sorts and right. they have to go to work in the morning, that kind of thing. It's one of those days. And then the other uh, interesting superstition that most people have, of course, and I'll lift up here, is the black cat. Oh, yes. Well, I got a black hat on my shirt here. Listen, I'm telling you, you crazy bastard, get that shirt off. <laughs> um, in fact, there is an animal that is really unlikely to come into contact with. It's not the cat, but, you know, just as cute. Right. I'm going to put it up here. There it is. Is that a honey badger? It's, it's a marmot. Oh, a marmot. Uh, a marmot is uh, like a woodchuck or a groundhog, right. we would call it. That's the Mongolian marmot. Uh, it is, in the history of the world, the number two most dangerous animal. Really? Uh, yeah. Number one is the mosquito because the mosquito carries malaria. Yeah, yeah. It's killed more people. But that cute little guy you're looking at there is responsible for the death of more than one billion people. Is, is that Black Death? That's Black Death. This is the guy that um, uh, first contracted the virus of the bubonic plague. Right. He, when he developed it, it's much like a human being get it. In fact, they still carry it today uh, in that they get the glandular lymph nodes appearing underneath the armpits right. and then the groin. Uh, they would, they initially spread, uh, would spread it by coughing. So right. it would. <laughs> if, you, if you're on the subway and the marmot next to you is coughing. Get away. Run off from the halls. Do not <laughs> get over or a SEPA call. Don't do it. <laughs> there are really weird um, superstitions around little tiny vermins. I don't know what it is, uh, rodents and that kind of thing. For 300 years in uh, the United Kingdom, uh, it was legal to hunt and kill hedgehogs. In fact, <laughs> they're uh, so cute. I know they are. They're adorable. And, and little boys would be sent out into the fields to collect them uh, and bring back the heads of hedgehogs for which they would be paid one pence each. But for 300 years they were hunted. And the reason was that it was held as a very strong belief amongst farmers that hedgehogs steal milk from cows. Right, right. I've heard this, I think. Yeah. And I, it also strikes me that, you know, Brits with their sort of you know, particularly twisted sense in those days of how to rear kids, you know, how to raise kids, you know, they make up some sort of like weird little uh, tongue twister about hedgehog heads, hedgehog heads, <laughs> say 50 times in a row. I bet you you can't. Well, it's, it's bizarre because I can't figure out how hedgehogs would steal milk from cows. They're very small. Cows are very tall. The udders yeah. are well off the ground. Not only that, but they can't hold much milk. They're so small. Yeah. I don't know. But anyways, I mean, for many, many years, poor hedgehogs were killed uh, left, yeah. right, and center under that belief. Today, even though it, it, people tend to look on that as being foolish, there is this massive movement in England right now to kill badgers. Right. Under the belief that they give tuberculosis to cows. Really? Uh, really. It, my Twitter feed has lit up in the last couple of months with all sorts of Brits that are going on about how ridiculous it is that you have these municipal counties. They've hired people to go out and kill record numbers of badgers under right. the belief that they're giving tuberculosis to, to cattle. Uh, right. Scientists have gathered 
reports that they've given to the government that show that during the years when you have the lowest population of badgers, they've had the highest number of tuberculosis <laughs> cases amongst wow. cows. And still, it's just it's a widely held belief that if we kill the badgers, the cows will get better. Right, right, right. Well, I don't buy that. No. I don't buy that. It's the it's the shoes on the table. <laughs> it's the damn shoes on the table. Although you know, I t it was so uh, surprising to me my reaction yeah. when Andrea came and put the shoes in a bag that were in a box, and she was very casual about it. I'm like, are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? <laughs> and I, they weren't there for very long. They weren't on the table for long enough for anything bad to happen. So I think I rescued us. From right. something really terrible happening. So. You, you've reinforced the behavior, and uh -huh. and potentially you could teach it to Andrea. So uh, that she'll never be putting shoes on, on the table again. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we're going to finish off with our battle of the monsters, and I'm losing my light. It's getting yeah. really dark. And, like it, I keep looking out the window. It's getting. It's about to get insane outside. I think. <laughs> I think we have. We've. We've certainly done something because uh, shoes, somebody put the damn shoes on the table I opened up the umbrella the right. skies are kind of coming after us yeah. but our, our, our next battle for Battle of the Monsters uh, this week and I'm going to see if I can find that photo I wanted to find a really good one uh, da, 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 da. okay it's not in my screen share docket let me pull it up here but we are looking at monsters that represent the 80s and the 90s Right. and the two that I thought that did that best Oh, come on. Where'd it go? I saved it and it's gone. Oh, there it is. Ha ah, Open. There we go. Screen share. Click. Here we are. This I love this painting. Aliens uh, versus yes, Predator. Yes, yes. Here they are. I love this painting of them playing chess. That's just yep. fantastic. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think two of the most iconic and original monsters that were conceived uh, in recent years. Uh, I didn't want to put up the poster for those stupid movies that they made, yeah, which yeah, uh, yeah. just, I mean, reducing something that's so terrifying and psychological to wrestling, it's just crazy. And but, uh, now, for you, what is it that makes them terrifying? Uh, Alien, for me, uh, it has to be the, um, uh, I think it, it really is the alien nature. That, right. that What you're looking at with the alien monsters is that it's something that's biomechanical. Right. It's something that the fact that it's it's blood is made of acid. It's 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 not just something that looks alien, but it's presented as being something that would be completely different from right. anything else that we have on the planet. Right. Uh, right. And I think that there is something very primitive about the way that the jaw pops out, um, the, the the transparency of the dome of the head, the the, the insect uh, insect like sort of coiling and snake like coiling of the yeah. tails and all that. I think it's it's really good. Yeah, I think for me, uh, it is the, the idea that they are very large versions of something that you would normally step on if you saw it on the street, you know, or, or, <laughs> or go out of your way to avoid, you know. They're sort of like part insect, part scorpion or something, and, and there's, there's something that's sort of intrinsically evil, and I think that the sleek look of them as well is there, there's something menacing about it? They're 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 sleek looking. They they move quickly. There there's something that just doesn't feel good about them. They are the stuff of nightmares. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Predator, which uh, created by Stan Winston, is fantastic. I just yeah. think so well done. It's we've had a lot of people create monsters to sort of you know uh, are, are have components of it made up of animals from the what. Right. 
the animal kingdom, but there's something about the predator that I think just has such great stunning character and personality. Uh, the, the, the fact that it's got dreadlocks, uh, the mandibles that are kind of like a crab, the, yeah. uh, the, 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 the whole mythology behind it, the fact that they have this tribal it, sort of... And it looks like it's wearing armor, too. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. That Caribbean kind of look to it. So uh, what we've asked, again, is that uh, you go to our website, heyallyouzombies.com. We're going to put up a poll. You can choose one of the two uh, to, to kind of be the strongest monster creation. And then next week, we will move that on. We're going to take all three of the winners from the past three weeks and uh, you know try to decide upon one monster for Halloween for the year 2012. Wahoo! Well, uh, before you plunge into darkness completely <laughs> and whatever is going to happen out here, maybe it is the apocalypse. Maybe I did leave the shoes on the table for too long. I don't know. But I think I have a feeling that I that I caused this, and I'm sorry to everyone. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> thank you for watching. Go to the website, heyallyouzombies.com. Check out the web poll. You really, you have to vote so that we can have a clear winner at the end and we can finally put this to rest one way or the other. Who is the greatest monster of all time? All right. Here we go. <laughs> 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 <laughs>